if you have been battling as a professional with evangelizing customer centricity, then stop and ask yourself, how can I become more business-centered, right, to achieve the same result? Welcome to the Human Insight Podcast, where we help you bridge the empathy gap to bring you a valuable new understanding of some of the most innovative ideas and trends shaping the future of business and customer experience. Hi, I'm Janelle Estes, Chief Insights Officer at User Testing, and today we've invited Tamara Adlin, Chief Product Officer at Blockchain Ventures and co-author of The Persona Lifecycle, which was originally published in early 2005 and a revised version was published in 2010. Thanks so much for joining us today, Tamara, and welcome to the show. Thanks. Delighted to be here. Delighted to see you and talk to you again, Janelle. We're so excited to have you on. Tamara and I go way back uh, and we both had some interesting career paths and journeys, but you're specifically from University of Washington Tech Communication to Seattle Startups to Akamai and Amazon to owning your own firm to now at blockchain ventures and still consulting. So can you share your story with us? Oh, sure, <laughs> sure. It should only take about three or four hours and I'll just get started right now. No, I'm kidding. I can do it quick. Even as far back as my undergrad days, I was interested in, in different stuff and I was interested in art and psychology and how vision works. And I did an independent major and then I left there and then accidentally discovered human computer interaction in the early nineties, which is when it was very early days and everybody was calling it usability. Um, and then accidentally again, discovered the department of technical communication, which is now the department uh, is now called human centered design and engineering at the university of Washington. And I didn't know anything about technical communication or anything, but I went there and talked to them and they were like, yep, you're one of us. And I was like, okay. So I went there got my degree and then got really interested in startups. The way I ended up at Akamai was I was working for an early stage Seattle startup that was called MetaBridge and then called NetPodium. And it was actually a very early version of what we use in software like Zoom and WebEx and things like that. Anyway, it got bought and then bought again. So that was Akamai. And then um, I went to Amazon and then decided after the book was published that I wanted to do independent consulting from the outside for a very important reason, which is I think that's the way I can do my best work and help companies most effectively is to try to untangle some of the internal stuff that can't be untangled from the inside. Yeah, that's really, really interesting and fascinating. And, and I agree. Uh, there are some some challenges that can only be untangled from, from the outside, as you put it. You're currently CPO at Blockchain Ventures. So can you tell us a little bit about that role? What do you do there? What is Blockchain Ventures? Well, so Blockchain Ventures was started by a guy named Ken Seif, who I've known since my Amazon days. He started Bluefly, which was uh, one of the first sites selling off-price uh, designer apparel. And he's been the serial entrepreneur ever since. And he collects people. <laughs> he collected me. And I've helped with every startup he's been involved in. He got super excited about blockchain and eventually started Blockchain Ventures and wanted me to come on and help because he knows that customer centricity, um, understanding of the dynamics that can happen in startups, it's all valuable to him because he knows it can make a difference between a successful and unsuccessful company. So it's not a full-time role for me, but it's one that I take very seriously. And I do everything from 
you know, I've developed something that I call UX due diligence, which is if, if user experience problems are, are like 11 of the 20 top reasons startups fail, why aren't we doing UX due diligence along with technical due diligence, product market fit, and team? And there's a lot that a UX professional can assess out of an hour-long conversation with a startup founder and looking at their product and asking them how they designed it and how they intended to design it, all the way through workshops and consulting that I do, you know, after they've signed on to be one of the portfolio companies. So it's really fascinating to me to look at that because I think not only do companies want to move towards being more customer centric or user experience centric, you know, Ken is saying, well, I think venture should really venture capitalists and venture firms should really figure out a way to move that way too. I agree with him completely. And it excites me to think about that, to think about how can people make better decisions when they're investing and how can they support young companies better to create products that are more successful because people love them. Can you tell us a little bit about the book, um, The Persona Lifecycle? I remember this is like the book on personas, like when you're first, you know, trying to understand the topic and building your first persona to when you are like, you know, you've done this a few times and you, you're maybe training up other teams. What prompted you to write that? And I, how do you think about success related to this book? It's so interesting to talk about the book that was originally published in 2005, as you said now, because as we record this just a little while ago, Alan Cooper, who originated the idea of personas, and we are forever in debt to that, wrote an article about how personas have been bastardized over the years and actually uh, how our book was uh, possibly part of that. But here, here's the quick history of that, which, and I sometimes I do whole presentations on the history of personas because I think it's so fascinating to look at how things evolve in our field. You're looking at how careers and people um, and thought leadership evolve. And I'm really interested also in, in how other things have evolved in our field. So the way the persona thing happened was in 1999, a boss of mine handed me the Inmates Are Running the Asylum book by Cooper. It totally fascinated me. And like many other practitioners, I immediately wanted to start doing personas. Now, in that book, Cooper describes personas and the value of personas, but he does not tell you how to create them other than gather data, look for patterns in your data, and create personas. So John Pruitt and I and Holly Jamison Carr. Anyway, we decided to do a workshop together at the Usability Professionals Association Conference, which was interesting because John didn't like me. <laughs> I didn't know this. I'd given a talk at, at Microsoft, and I had said in 2000, even if you just name your assumptions and make personas that way, you'll be better off. He was in that audience, along with six other people, about to launch the first gigantic persona effort at Microsoft, which was heavily data-driven on purpose. And those were the Vista personas. So I said this in a room full of a thousand people or whatever. And he was, he was like, I don't like that woman. Anyway, <laughs> long story short, we ended up becoming great friends. We did these workshops at, at UPA because people were trying personas and failing. After doing this a few times, we were approached to write a book for Morgan Kaufman. We thought it would be easy and take six months. It took five years. It ended up being extremely long. Sorry about that to everyone who's read it, but we really dove in to try to figure out how do we tell people how to do this, um, which was different than the Cooper way of doing it. And I think his recent article was about people not doing it the right way, but he never did tell people unless they, um, of course, went to Cooper and learned it. So that's where the book came from. Uh, and after that, 
you know, there's, there's still been so much up and down with the feelings about personas and my feelings about how to create personas have changed so much since then. But it's, it's fascinating to look at how our field is evolving as we are practicing it. Totally. So your statement early on that made John mad around building personas around your assumptions is good enough. Do you still believe that? Oh my God, I believe it more. I believe really? it more. It's it's so funny. I've looped back around to that. Yeah. So I have this, I kept trying to do things that would help companies build better products and all the methods in our toolbox. So many of them are such great methods, but they weren't working. And I got fascinated about why. And when you look for problems in organization or challenges or what's keeping something from working, you swim upstream. And I ended up all the way back in the executive suite. And what I found there was, as my dear friend Katie Jeminder says, a game of telephone that was disrupting everything. So the, the summary is that I believe that until you know what's in the heads of executives in a way that's useful, until you translate that into a common language that they can all see, you can't change it, no matter how much data you collect. There's nowhere for the data to land. So my strong belief now, based on practical experience, is assumptions are super important to know about, especially if you want to change them. So it's not saying that assumptions should drive everything in an organization. It's saying that if you want to change them, you have to be able to see them first. That's really powerful. <laughs> we got to dig more into that. And I Good. suspect it might be related to this next question I have for you, which is, you know, you've always, since I've known you, championed the importance of customer centricity and, you know, designing from the outside in and um, bringing outside perspective to teams. Uh, in your opinion, though, what is in the way of companies actually doing this? Every company says they are customer centric or want to be customer centric, but actually it's not really happening. Um, so what's the blocker? So let me tell you what the blocker is, I think, from the startup perspective. I think it's not that dissimilar in larger companies, but this was a big aha moment for me. And it has to do with practical factors in the way that businesses get formed and, and successful. So let's talk about a startup for a second. Startup person has an idea. They find a co-founder or something, and then they go out to raise money. So what they do is they polish the idea as much as they can into an investor deck. Right. And along with that investor deck, they either create a prototype or an MVP <laughs> or they de describe and define one. Then they go out to get money. And in order to get money, somebody has to say to them, your idea is really good, good enough to invest in, good enough to give you some portion of a million dollars or several million dollars. Then what the startups founders do is they go, they want to go build that thing that somebody else validated, right? You can, uh, you, you, and the, the human condition is that if, if I think I have a good idea, I want to do that good idea, no matter what anybody says about it. Okay. So let me give you a, <laughs> let me give you a really powerful personal example that I have. Okay. So I have this fireplace in my house and it's a very old house. It was built in 1919 and the fireplace smoked terribly. And so I thought, well, I'll get a gas insert. So I saved up my pennies and dimes and I decided to get a gas insert in that fireplace. And there's two kinds. There's a kind that are like a fire where it's open and you can, you can, if you want to, you could reach in and touch it. There's the other kind that's like a fire in a fishbowl, right? That's an insert. 
I decided I want it to be a real fire. I want it to be open. I want to be able to open it up and see the flames. I don't want a fire in a fishbowl. Every single person that I talked to said, do not do that. What's going to happen is it's going to make your house colder because you have to permanently open the flue because it's gas. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm sure that this is going to be great. It's going to be so much more aesthetically pleasing, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, I can't even tell you how many times we come and replace what you're asking for with the fire in a fish tank. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you're crazy. I had it installed. It made my house colder. And two years later, I had to save my pennies and dimes again to get a very expensive replacement. And now I'm much happier with it because it doesn't make my house colder. No one could say, there was all sorts of data everywhere. Anywhere I looked on the web, it was telling me, don't do this. I did it anyway, because I wanted that thing. I had it in my head. It's no different for a startup founder, especially if they've gotten the validation of somebody writing them a check for a million dollars. They want to build the thing that's in their head. And until they do that, or until they see the ramifications of doing that, you can't convince them otherwise. And when you look at it that way, I love these sort of moments of seeing something like, oh yeah, that's just human. It has nothing to do with data. It has nothing to do with the laws of customer centricity. It has to do with the fact that somebody was given a lot of money for an idea that they already think is good. Yeah, that makes a, that that certainly makes a lot of sense. So then they create it, right? And they launch it. And then something's, it get, maybe it gets a little traction, right? It probably gets a little bit of traction or some traction. There's still things wrong with it. And here's what happens then. The idea behind an MVP, an agile design, is that you do quick throwaway code, right? And you do these tests and you essentially are supposed to throw them out <laughs> and start over. I mean, that's kind of a extreme way of putting it. But instead, what happens is they launch that MVP, they get a little bit of traction, and maybe they do that even before they get money. Now they have investors. They cannot throw away that traction. So they end up, if they've created an MVP that is agile, it means that it's rather rickety and it's there to prove a business case. Well, now they have traction, which means now they have all sorts of pressures on them to build on top of that rickety thing. So the, the reality is that most, I call this the catch 22 of the MVP, and I have to write this up as an article. Everybody launches an MVP, and then it's nearly impossible to throw it away. So by definition, startups are building skyscrapers on top of bamboo and chewing gum foundations, because that's the way we've built the company creation process and the way that impacts the engineering and quote air quotes, do it the right way process. That's the reality, in my opinion. If we take that and kind of think ahead to say a startup is successful, they grow, they, you know, they, they become um, much bigger than a startup. Uh, and then you get into a place where you have bigger teams, bigger companies, bigger, well, more opinions, right? Mm -hmm. uh, bigger executive teams. Like, how does this like translate to bigger companies? Like when, when, when you're working with you know, a larger corporation. And again, going back to this idea of like customer experience is really important, or we, we want to be customer centric, or we even making the claim you are customer centric. But when you talk to the people that are actually running the teams and on the ground, that's not actually the case. And right. so what is the, what's the disconnect there? <laughs> so 
oddly, I have an opinion about this too, which I'm sure will come as a massive surprise. Um, here's the deal. You start adding more people. Long story short, what happens is you have these very exciting startups and they make a big splash, often because they do something that's a wow moment. Like a million years ago, I worked with Zillow in 2006, right? They made this huge splash because you could type in any address in the world, well, in the United States, and instantly get a quote unquote estimate, which was put together out of numbers that were freely available, but nobody had bothered to put them all together and make them easy for customers. Everybody loved it. As Zillow grew, I still love Zillow, don't get me wrong. It became this sprawling site with so much stuff on it beyond the original. And in some ways, in a way it became, in my opinion, part of the problem for buying a house is feeling completely overwhelmed, right? And so this magic spark of an instant number that was a solution, right? To an overwhelmed moment morphed into something that was yet another, I need to look at this and it's kind of a complicated thing, right? I think that happens to a lot of companies because as you get more and more people on the executive team and as you get traction in various places, they're looking to build the best business, spread the business, look for new lines of income. So for example, we should sell mortgages. We should, uh, you know, maybe we should have our own agents. Now they're doing things where they, they help flip houses or whatever it is. And then you get a more sprawling organization. And then what ends up happening is what happens with every organization is that they find it really hard to prioritize. And the prioritization process, either for massive initiatives, all the way down to individual tiny projects, end up being arguments, the results of which have more to do with politics in the room than they have to do with anything customer related. So, my fascination with that is it's not about adding more data to that because that's why I don't think data helps. Data doesn't solve politics. What does is if you can change the conversation so that it's not, is my idea more important or valued than your idea? Or is my position in the company higher paid? Avinash Kaushik calls it the hippo, the highest individually paid person in the organization. Is the hippo winning? But instead, can we all change our focus and talk about something else. Like, you know, if you're kids and you have a sibling, if you had an argument with your sibling, but suddenly both of you got mad at mom, you were friends again. Well, I want to like give them something else to talk about, not to be mad at, but to change the conversation so that that game of telephone gets disrupted. That's where customer centricity can start creeping back into the room. That's fascinating. Is this your magic trick that you call executive alignment? <laughs> it is. And the, it's a magic trick. It's so funny to like sell something that no one thinks they need and no one wants. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm out here as a consultant. I'm like, I have this particular magic, but it depends on people realizing that their organizations are a mess. And nobody raises their hand and says, ah, yeah, our organization is an unholy mess. You know, instead they ask for things like persona. So what, ends up what ended up happening with me a lot and still does, the people call me and are like, well, we are researching organizations to do personas for us and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, well, let's talk about that. But let me tell you, I do it differently. They're like, okay, because we are looking for people who can do massive research projects and then create personas for us. And I'm like, okay, that's not going to work. 
And let me tell you why. And that's because I said, what's, what problem are you trying to solve with the personas? Which by the way, is something everyone in our industry should ask themselves before doing anything. (laughs) What problem are you trying to, what problem are you trying to solve with usertesting.com? What problem are you trying to solve with anything? Right. And, and what problem are you trying to solve with quote unquote user testing as a, as a category that'll help you choose the method because first you have to know the result. You have to have the hypothesis first. Right. So what are the most common problems that people try to solve with personas that you hear? Well, they start by saying, well, we really need to get more customer centric. We really want to bring more data driven decisions into uh, everything and a little lot. And within five minutes, they're like, oh my God, the director of marketing is in this huge battle with the head of product and they hate each other, but they won't admit that they hate each other. And the director of product is best friends with the CEO, but we think he's worthless. And meanwhile, everybody's talking about the fact that the chief finance officer is completely in our business because he doesn't want us to buy. Okay. That's the conversation I end up having. Right. And by the way, their voice goes from, we are researching companies to, to, right. This is the real problem. Data-driven personas will not solve the fact that the chief marketing officer and the director of product can't stand to be in the room together. It won't, because no matter, even if you created the best data-driven personas in the world, if they came from the director of products, team, and budget, the marketing person will find a problem with them. If they came from marketing, the director of product will look at the way the research was done and say it was marketing, which, by the way, both are probably valid. They won't solve the problem. I don't care how much money you spend. I don't care how much time you spend. You'll be back to the beginning again. So what solves the problem? What solves the problem is understanding what the problem actually is, right? Mm -hmm. So every one of my projects starts with a couple of things that nobody wants to do and they all want me to take out of the contract. The first one is the goals of the persona effort, right? Or Or the alignment effort. I ask people to write down, I have four column spreadsheet. What's the problem you're trying to solve? What's some evidence of the problem. Like for example, evidence of the problem the, that Acme Incorporated marketing versus product is that it's taking forever us for us to launch products and none of them are any good. And for example, we're doing stuff that's really our marketing message doesn't match our product. For example, link link link, right? What do we hope will change? That's the third column. Like literally, what do you hope will t- oh well it'll be quicker or, blah, 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 or sooner or whatever they'll be they'll match. And the last column is how can you measure that change? So if we do change it, what numbers or what evidence will we have? And the other thing that I do first is I say that we're going to articulate the business goals, the metrics for success for the project that we're talking about. So not necessarily for the persona effort, but if we're redesigning the flim flam widget of the jolly gig machine, what needles do we have to move and by how much? They all tell me, take that out because we already have those. I ask them to send them over and I never get them because business goals don't exist. Every time you write them down, if I say this all the time, more than two executives are in a room and have a conversation, something shifts slightly and no one writes it down. So everyone thinks their business goals are super clear. I had like kind of a knockdown drag out fight with the CEO of a business that I worked with once, he was adamant 
that everybody was clear on their business goals. Everyone, it was a huge meeting. And like he was getting pissed. After the meeting, four people walked up to me and, and, and told, pulled me aside and said, oh my God, I'm so glad you brought that up because we have no idea. So goals of whatever effort we're doing and how to know if we succeeded and goals of whatever project we're working on and how we, those are a giant part of my process that no one wants to do and I can't work without. And I think every UX practitioner using any method ever should always create measurable goals for that effort. So if we buy a year-long subscription to usertesting.com, what numbers do we want to change by how much over the course of that year? Do we want 15% fewer customer support calls that are over 10 minutes? Do we want to diminish the amount of time between spec complete and product launch? Do we want to, you know, what, by, by how much? By a week or by three months? And that last bit is important. If we do that, then we start speaking the language of business. And that's one of the last frontiers, I think, for our field. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Could not agree more. And actually, that's a nice segue because I, I did want to actually talk to you about the role of UX within business. It almost feels like, or it seems like a lot of conversations that I have or questions that I often get asked is like, how do we become more relevant? How do we prove the business value? How do we show our impact? What's the ROI? Like it, the questions go on and on. Is this is this the answer? Yeah, I love this topic because, you know, anybody who's listening, some of these things I repeat over and over again, but I used to walk around thinking if I write, asked the right executive the right question at the right time, they would tell me what they wanted me to build, right? And then I had this facepalm moment in my career many years ago. I was like, they don't know. They don't know. It's not like anybody's going to be able to tell you, here's what you need to do to prove your ROI. No one knows. So you, practitioner, have to make yourself usable. Well, who's your user? An executive. What's the language an executive speaks? Well, first of all, it's a language that goes in the spreadsheet. So let's pop open a spreadsheet, right? Because if it's not on a, if it's on sticky notes, executives aren't going to listen to it. If it's in a spreadsheet, it can be exactly the same information and they will listen to it. It has to have numbers in it. Go find some numbers. They could be numbers of weeks. They could be numbers of dollars. They could be numbers of personnel. They could be numbers of subscribers. They could be numbers of candy bars in the kitchen. I don't care what they are. Go find numbers, right? And then propose changes to those numbers and show them to the executives so they can look at that spreadsheet with numbers in it and see that you are proposing increasing the number of candy bar varieties in the kitchen from 12 to 14, hoping that productivity will increase by 15%. And they'll say, you're so stupid. We should be increasing it not from 12 to 15, but 12 to 18. And I've been saying that for years, at which point you say, thank you for enlightening me, oh, grand poobah of excellence. And you thank them for having corrected something that they never made clear in the first place, right? You make it easy for them. You make it easy for them and hard for them. One is you make it easy for them because they can react and edit and call you uninformed. You make it hard for them because they can't ignore your question anymore. If you give them a spreadsheet and say, if we achieve this number in this amount of months, is this good enough? 
they can't just say, punt. This is a relevant question. It's never an irrelevant question. But what they can then do is forward your email and your spreadsheet to their boss and say, look how stupid Janelle is. Look at this crazy spreadsheet. How dumb is she? Whew, good thing I caught it in time. I wanted to give you a chance to correct her. And meanwhile, they're like, because I have no idea. I don't know. And I don't want to make a guess because what if I'm wrong? That's, this is my, this is my, I think this is my magic secret sauce. (laughs) And it's not me alone, but I love like trying to find like, what's the, like, what's the stuff that we're forgetting about being human in all of this? What we're forgetting about being human is that getting promoted does not make you magically able to create ROI reports. Like, when do you learn that? Right. But we act as if it's just there and they're not giving it to us. And it's not. So that turned me into somebody who said, what if it was my job to help the executives get more clear? And that's then trying to package that and say, well, the value here is executive alignment and changing the name. uh, You know, the same method was called ad hoc personas. I now call it alignment personas because that word wasn't helping. The ad hocness of them was not the part that was valuable. The result was what was valuable. So sometimes even just changing that vocabulary. Yeah, alignment sounds a lot safer than ad hoc. That's for sure. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's funny you bring up um, the spreadsheet. I once had, uh, I once attended a, a training. It was with a sales trainer. And one of the things that he said has stuck with me to this day and, and helps me when I'm trying to navigate these similar situations or have in the past is individual contributors think in Word documents, executives think in spreadsheets. And oh I God, thought I love that. it I was that. just such a great way to, to think about how you relate to and show your relevance to people in different roles. Okay, so let's imagine that, that you're uh, evaluating something that has multiple solutions, right? Maybe it's a personal one. I mean, we can all think about this for work, but oh, let's imagine for work. Let's imagine a, a, a workplace is trying to decide whether they should change benefit providers, right? Now, someone who's probably pretty junior on the team is going to be assigned the task of comparing the vendors. And they are then gonna create perhaps their first spreadsheet. They're not even a boss. They've been told by their boss to do that. And they're going to have to figure out what are the vectors of comparison? What are the rows that I'm using to compare these different vendors? And it's going to be somebody whose profession is not about making these kinds of assessments. (laughs) Excuse me. We are all forced at some point to create spreadsheets like that. And we're really not trained how to do it. You know, one thing that I think would be magical, progressive insurance, for example, made a huge name for themselves by creating that spreadsheet for you as an individual. They they did it for you. I think all vendors of software, of solutions, should create the spreadsheet for (laughs) the person. So no matter what you're selling, what if you did the compare, not just the check boxes on the marketing site, but the numbers, if you have $10,000 or you have 50 users or whatever, I mean, they're going to find it, right? It's just going to be hard. And we're all so programmed not to do that. It's like, we're programmed to like, let's see how sneaky we can be with our messaging to convince them to adopt us. But anyway, I think the same challenge holds true for us conveying results 
of any of our user experience activities. We have to give them the, the result, but the impact of that result. If we don't change this, then we can expect customer service calls to increase by 50%, right? We have to connect that. And by the way, that means an increase of $400,000 year over year in customer support calls. We have to do that. We have to connect yeah. those dots. You've got to make the connection. Yeah. Absolutely. But we assume that it's obvious in our Word doc, but they have to put it in a spreadsheet. Thinking about business value, user experience, and it all comes back to sort of all this work and investment that we're putting into becoming more customer-centric. And there's this whole notion that goes into customer centricity and evangelizing. I mean, there's, I'm sure evangelizing that you need to do related to getting teams to adopt personas or uh, evangelize uh, how executives need to be better aligned, but it really does all come back to being able to be aligned so you can make better decisions that are for your customers that help grow your business. And I guess this notion of evangelizing customer centricity, like, do you ever get sick of it? Does it ever get old? <laughs> yeah, because I think it's the wrong thing to try to do. I don't think, like, I here's what I would evangelize. I would evangelize business centricity to customer-focused professionals. Mm. That's what's standing in your way. We've tried all the arguments. We've tried all the arguments about why it's so great to be customer-centered. We have to meet them where they are. We have to find the people who control the dollars. Now, I'm not saying this is a new idea. Of course, ROI has been out there. Some of the great thinkers in our industry have done huge work on ROI, you know, the big names in our, in our field. But individually, I think if you have been battling as a professional with evangelizing customer centricity, then stop and ask yourself, how can I become more business-centered, right, to achieve the same result? Because right now you're pushing up against, you know, there's this analogy that I, I like to use, which is that all of us feel like we're building this beautiful tropical island, no matter what it is. Maybe we're building a product that's a beautiful tropical island, or maybe we're building a customer-centricity program that we feel is, like, how could you ignore how wonderful this is? And we're like on our island and we're waving our arms to the people on the mainland, assuming that they're just going to see it and see it's worth coming over because look how beautiful. They're too far away. Then we say, well, let's just build a boat and bring them over. That's too much of a, an ask on their part too. get on a boat, travel all the way from home over to this thing that's not proven yet. Instead, we have to build stepping stones all the way from our island to the mainland. Not only that, we have to walk back over ourselves and take their hand and take them to the first stone second stone, third stone, fourth stone. We have to do the work to get them to the island. We are not doing that. We just keep saying, how can we make the island prettier? It's never gonna, how can we make the boat bigger? How can we, that's not gonna help us as much at this point. Yeah, it's yeah. almost like we fundamentally break the rule that we are always talking about, which is uh, know your user, know your target audience, know who you're talking to. Uh, yes, I'm this waving isn't their my dialogue. <laughs> That's right. Our users are business people. 
And we are not remembering to use all the skills we have in this regard. Instead, we're treating it as some different kind of problem. It's not a different problem, guys. They're users. They're users of us. We are products. Our, our documents are products. Is your document usable? It may be great to create, you know, we used to create usability test reports that were like 40 pages long and hand them over and be all proud of ourselves and wait for our trophy. And like, why are they ignoring our results? Because they're not one page. So luckily, 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 I can point, we can point out this huge problem and say, guess what? You already have every single tool you need to fix this. UX due diligence is a fascinating topic and a, and a fascinating way to think about the work that we do. So what does UX due diligence, what does that entail? I need to write up my little article on that. But, you know, if, if, if a senior UX person goes in and talks to a startup team, they can immediately sniff out how well that senior team understands how do you design a great product? Because startup founders are often 24-year-old white men. <laughs> now it's getting more diverse. Thank our thank heavens and all that's above. But young people who have been told that they're a genius tend to think they know how to do everything. And they tend to think, well, we can also design products faster and better than any of the old people can. And, and uh, nothing that experience can tell us is valuable. When you're a UX professional and you ask a team, how did you design this MVP? Who on your team is a designer and what does that mean to you? What is your budget over the next year with respect to UX? No, no, not just a logo designer, UX, right? Oh, and, you're, and if you hear something like, we hope to hire one more front-end engineer in the next 18 months, you know that they're going to have a problem. Things as simple as that indicate a huge issue, which is that after they release their first product or whatever, they're going to be in for a world of hurt. Now, investors may or may not care about that, but there are so many startups that have to undergo super expensive, you know, millions of dollars, complete overhauls in 18 months. And it's pretty easy to spot which ones those are going to be. Yeah, that's really interesting. Really, really interesting. Because you also see the startups that have this ingrained from the very beginning where, where and in fact, they don't even actually have a UX team. It's just part of what they do. Right. So everybody is, you know, engineers are asking, when are we doing the user testing? If that's right. the case, great, great. That's very different than especially in brand new technologies like blockchain. So what I say about that is these are people who think they can reinvent money and they can. So they also try to reinvent the software development and design process because why not? It's gotta be quicker, easier ways. And I'm like, well, even if you could pick one, just pick one because it's enough to redesign money, isn't it? <laughs> and there are ways to make this make sense to people that can help you, but if you're hearing a certain amount of frustration in my voice, it's because there's a certain amount of frustration in my voice. We're having to revisit arguments that we haven't made since 20 years ago. Like arguments like, no, you can't just copy the design of Google Drive. And if you have an hour, I'll tell you why. Yeah, I love it. Well, I don't love it. It actually is very scary. It's like all this progress that we've made, right? And it's our job our job to fix it. Like I've been whining about it. And then I was like, oh, Tamara, you can't whine about it. You have to 
take your own medicine and figure out how to fix it. Mm-hmm. In some cases, that means absenting myself. There are some, I'm really confident and really good. And I got knocked off my confidence hardcore uh, for like 18 months because I ran into some of these blockchain startups that told me they didn't, that they didn't find my insights valuable at all. And I was like, I was, I was knocked, knocked sideways. And if I can be knocked sideways professionally, any, I mean, I'm easy to knock sideways personally, but professionally it's pretty hard to do it. And one of the things I realized was there are some companies that are not ready yet. And I cannot argue my way or help my way into them seeing the value of what I do until they fail once the first time. And now we have looped back around to the beginning of our conversation where I said that if an executive thinks something should be built or designed a certain way, they have to see it that way first. A lot of these guys have to install the gas fireplace that's going to make their house colder before they are ready to talk to me. And I am not interested in arguing them for seven hours about the they're making the wrong decision. It's not going to help. It's like trying to teach a pig to sing. It not only wastes your time, it annoys the pig. One of my favorite quotes. <laughs> That's funny. I like that one too. All right. So now we're going to move into our lightning question round. So uh, starting with a first... sound effect. Is there a sound effect? <laughs> <laughs> we should actually. You can use that one. <laughs> Nathan's like, I don't need your help designing this thing. <laughs> We've talked a lot about the the history and evolution of of our field, and you know I'm interested, and our listeners are likely interested as well. Uh, is there a book that captures the evolution of our field, or are there people uh, that listeners should sort of look into to understand the progress that they've made for the field? Well, there are two things I want to mes- mention. One is an amazing book called User Friendly, and it's by Cliff Quang and Robert Fabricant, and I love it so much. Um, the other thing I want to mention is I did a project uh, back in 2006-2007, and I've called, I, it's published on uxpioneers.com. I realized that everyone in our field was a weirdo. <laughs> started from a non-UX background because there was no UX background. So I started to do interviews with some of the amazing um, pioneers in our field, and I recorded them, and I transcribed them. So far, there's only about 18 of them up there, and I have another 18 that I have to publish. I have to find someone to help me edit those, but that's available to anyone anytime, and, and that's a fun place to go and look at. What, what every interview starts with, what, what's the first thing you remember fascinating you? And we go from there to how did you help to create the field of user experience? Love it. I have to check those out. And I have read that user-friendly book. That is a, that's a great one. Oh my gosh. I loved it so much. It's so full of sticky notes now that I can't even close it. (laughs) So if you're anything like I am, I tend to overanalyze every possible interaction I have with technology or the world around me. My husband always teases me because like I can't take you out in public because you're just like constantly critiquing things. But I also notice great experiences and I'm sure you do as well. So is there a recent like great experience that you've had? I was lucky enough to get my first COVID vaccine. And actually the when I physically went there, I mean, we had to all wait outside in a long line and happened to be raining and I looked like a drowned rat by the time I got inside. But when I got inside, 
it was like beautiful. It was so well organized and such a well-oiled machine that it almost made me cry because it was, and it was humans. It was humans doing that. Sure, there were technology behind it, but your experience was not of technology, you know, clicking on kiosks. Your, your experience was of someone helping you in the door, of helping you stay six feet apart, of taking your temperature, of going to the first set of booths where you checked in, then the next set, then a short wait, and then a shot, and then being observed. It was so human, and it was perfect. Yeah, that's a really relevant and timely example. I had a similar experience recently. I've also been really impressed with the sites that you use to sign up to get on a waiting list or to register. Fairly user-friendly and mobile-friendly. Um, I was expecting a lot worse, <laughs> Yeah, to, to be honest. It does make me hope that the human systems are working in overdrive also to get to those people who don't have mobile phones, who don't have computers. Yeah, I don't know how, but I, I have, I'm, I'm hoping that those systems are as good as well. Yeah, it's a really good point. So let's talk about the future. When you, when you think about the future of experiences or some of the work that, that you've been focused on for the better part of your career, um, what, are you, what are you most excited about? What are you looking forward to? What are you, what are you hopeful for? You know, when you first started asking that question, I thought you were going to ask me, like, what, what concerns you? And so that's top of mind. What's top of mind right now is things in the blockchain world. And I want to tell UX practitioners that you need to get over your fear of it and you need to start learning about it because it's exciting and terrifying and it's turning back the clock on the progress that we've made in a very nasty way. Uh, because I think a lot of the founders of blockchain companies think that users should just be able to figure it out for themselves. So that worries me if, and, and all the implications of that. Uh, what excites me for the future is that are things like that human system of, of once you arrive at a getting your COVID shot, that the fact that we can still do stuff like that and that it's obviously technology supported, but the experience is not technical. The experience is technology supported humans. That excites me. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tamara, for joining us. This has been really insightful and fun and, and great to reconnect with you. Well, it's an honor to talk to you and to be on this show. Thank you so much. Want to keep the conversation going? You can visit our podcast hub, usertesting.com slash podcast and check out past episodes. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Overcast, or Google Play, so you can never miss a good episode. And if you enjoyed today's show, please share it with a friend or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts.